So I live in Orlando, Orange County, Florida, which would take the brunt of the tax hike due to the unincorporation of Disney property. Will Disney lawyers probably win out? I hope so. They've told their board it's no big deal. They'll get it back. But it's interesting how DeSantis is willing to give the majority of the burden to Orlando, which typically glows blue in elections. It will not affect the Republican Party at all, which is super frustrating. They don't need us in Orlando to do anything. With Florida prices skyrocketing, the house we bought a year and a half ago, we can't afford now, and that was before the Fed raised interest rates. I cannot imagine what a 20% plus property tax raise over two years will do to this area. What is true is Disney definitely has so much sway in Florida, but also locally in Orlando. Disney money is everywhere. So I'll be curious how the politics shift as the money shifts in retaliation. Basically, we're just emotionally spilling everywhere down here, somewhere between the happiest place on earth and hell. This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Today, we're going to do what we do best and engage in some political therapy around two of the most controversial issues in America right now, the end of Title 42 at the border, and Florida's war on Disney. Outside of politics, we're going to talk about May, or as I like to call it, December 2.0. Now, before we get started, Beth, you might sound a little different today. You want to tell why? Yes, our 16-year-old roof is being replaced as we speak. This was the only day in all of May, because again, December 2.0, that we could get it scheduled. And it's loud. And so my dear friends who just bought a house down the street from us allowed me to come into their empty, not yet moved into house. And I've set up a pillow fort in their half bath. It is not (laughs) how I anticipated spending my first hours in in their new home, but uh, I'm really (laughs) grateful uh, for the quiet space today. Speaking of gratitude, we are still so incredibly thankful for all of your support for our new book, Now What?, that launched last week. We love that you are all sharing your reviews on Amazon and Goodreads. Our goal is to get to 100. That's a really important number in the first few weeks of a book's launch. So if you haven't posted your review, we would love to see it. And also, the audiobook will be available on May 17th. And if you're looking for just one more way to show your support, you can request that your local library get a copy of Now What? Seriously, you guys, it is so incredible to watch your reviews pouring on Instagram and, and Facebook and Amazon, of course. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And up next, we're going to talk about Title 42. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka bra problems. 
Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Okay, Title 42. What is it? Well, former President Trump activated Title 42, which is part of the Public Health Service Act of 1944, which was aimed at preventing the spread of communicable diseases around the United States. Now, the law started empowering the Surgeon General, but they shifted that authority to the CDC. So if the CDC determines that there is a communicable disease in another country, health officials have the authority within this law and the approval of the president to prohibit, quote, the introduction of persons and property from such countries or places, end quote, for as long as the health officials deem necessary. Uh, Biden has continued this policy that allows the DHS to turn away migrants at the border, including, and this part's important, those seeking asylum, on the basis of public health concerns surrounding COVID-19. However, the Biden administration recently announced that they're going to let Title 42 end on May 23rd. And this has sparked a heated debate about this policy, about the end of this policy, and, of course, the politics surrounding this policy. And just to be clear, they're not changing the law. They're just repealing the invocation of Title 42, that they will resume normal immigration enforcement. Sarah, I think it is helpful to talk about how this law was invoked, because as we discussed when the pandemic began, there are public health reasons to occasionally close borders, but if you're going to do it, you have to do it fast and completely. You have to make it a really draconian measure in order for it to actually reduce transmission. And that reality is why Title 42 has not been used often in our history, because we are not often willing to do it in such a draconian way. 
President Trump's senior advisor, Stephen Miller, whose kind of reason for being was to curb immigration enforcement. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It was to curb immigration into the United States, started researching Title 42 very early in the Trump presidency before anyone had heard of the novel coronavirus. And he wanted to think about how could this be used during measles outbreaks? Or how could other communicable diseases be used to invoke Title 42? And they never got it done because it's just really hard to make the case that using it makes a difference. So COVID-19 was really an opportunity for them to do something that they had wanted to do anyway. I'm not sure that we ever use Title 42 in a public health manner that actually reduced the transmission of COVID. Maybe we did. It's hard to know. But the through line of how this came to be isn't very connected to a public health outcome. So the Biden administration wanting to end it is, one, an acknowledgement that we are no longer in a COVID emergency Even as we are seeing higher caseloads in parts of the country, the emergency has ended. Our hospitals know how to deal with this. We are not over flooded um, in hospitals right now. We are not requiring masks and um, people to stay at home, businesses to close down, that kind of thing. So the public health rationale, if it ever made sense, is over for the invocation of Title 42. The controversy, though, is people are saying, hey, normal immigration enforcement doesn't work in the spring ever, and we don't trust you to do normal immigration enforcement in a way that will prevent a real crisis. Because as the weather gets warmer this time of year, we know we will see an uptick in the number of people trying to cross into the United States from the southern border. Well, and what I think the Trump administration understood is that short of their unaccompanied minor disaster, although they included unaccompanied minor in their invocation of Title 42, the Biden administration had instructed agents to exempt unaccompanied minors, and they were being placed in federal shelters or state-run facilities until they were reunited with a family member. But I think for the most part, the Trump administration understood that Enforcing draconian immigration regulations created inherent problems for any opponents looking to repeal said draconian immigration regulations, which is like the second you want to take something away, you're being accused of being lax on immigration, right? And so putting them in place is a lot harder than taking them away. Um, It's really interesting when you look at the pragmatic reality of Title 42 at the border. I read both a sheriff on the border's editorial about this and some reporting about acting assistant secretary Nunez Neto, who appeared before Congress and was questioned by Senator Josh Hawley. And both of them made the argument that Title 42 had really increased recidivism, right? Because there were no consequences for trying to cross You just got turned away, turned away, turned away. People were just coming back and coming back and coming back and coming back. And so both of them were arguing, like, it's just inflating the numbers. You see these these statistics that 1.8 million times, that's how often Title 42 was used to expel migrants. And you you see these, these high numbers, but their argument is... Yeah, but it's the people coming more than once that's increased so tremendously under Title 42. Um, And there's a little bit of crosstalk about what's going to happen when it's repealed. You know, some people think because it's spring that, you know, it could open the floodgates. But then you hear, you know, officials at the border, you definitely hear DHS saying, we understand what time of year it is. 
We underst- We have been preparing since September for spring and for the end of Title 42. We are not anticipating, you know, a dramatic increase beyond what we usually see around this type of year. But I think you're right. I mean, there's there was some polling that just came out that the majority of Americans just don't trust that. Like a majority of Americans right now are saying don't end Title 42 because they don't trust DHS to be able to handle the influx. And I think that's a very difficult place to be in for the Biden administration. And I just, you know, I was I was listening to Ezra Klein's show and he interviewed former, you know, writer for the National Review, conservative pundit who's now written this history of the of the right. And it's just at so many points in the history of the right, but really I think you could argue the history of the country that immigration is the hot point. Immigration is the thing that people have so much fear and scarcity wrapped up into. And so anytime we touch on this issue, it's like I feel like immigration is sort of the new third reel of American politics. That you can't touch it. You can't be seen as soft on immigration. You can't be seen as even wanting to fix it because that's interpreted as being soft on immigration. And I feel like Title 42 is just one more manifestation of that reality. If you listen to past episodes, you know I'm a person who really values immigration. I will say I think that I have greater compassion around this debate than I've previously had about immigration because – You see us doing this, not just about people from other countries, but about each other in the United States right now. I have a lot of feelings about all the new construction that's happening in my area. I can feel myself getting into a real scarcity place. Can our infrastructure support this? How many new roads are we going to need? Traffic congestion is way up where I live. And while I think more people generally means good outcomes, I think that the collapse of a lot of things we always thought were solid around the pandemic are working on us in ways that it's hard to totally unravel. And so I can I can get in that scarcity place myself. When we were in Texas, we saw so many signs about uh, not wanting people from California in Texas. And I know throughout the country, there's been a ton of discussion, especially about wealthy people relocating from the coast to middle America and how people feel about that. So Sometimes when we talk about immigration, I worry that we what we are having is really a discussion about the changing complexion of America, that we have people with different skin colors, different languages, different cultures, different traditions. I think right now we still have that, but we have mixed into it just a, a huge dose of nothing feels very solid to me right now. And so the fear of more change is really strong. Now, that doesn't say anything about whether Title 42 was ever properly invoked here and whether revoking it is the correct thing to do under the law. But the bigger discussion, I think, has some new layers because of the pandemic. So we do have 22 states suing to stop the government from lifting 42. Texas has filed a separate lawsuit asking for the same thing. Now, these are very, like, bureaucratic arguments. It's basically that the Biden administration violated administrative procedural law. So it's that discussion, like, was it properly invoked? Is it properly being revoked? Um, And so there's a real legal discussion here. But I think you're right. I think the deeper issue is our feelings of scarcity surrounding so many things in this country. I think what's frustrating is that immigration 
could be the solution to so much of that scarcity we're experiencing after the pandemic. That the labor issues, that the supply chain issues that are driven by labor issues, immigration could be a real solution to that. Um, But that is a hard, it just seems to be consistently a, a hard lift for Americans to understand and appreciate and engage with. You know, I I was talking with some family members last night and a conservative family member said, you know, I was hearing people talk about jobs and and all the unfilled jobs. And I said, I know we don't like to talk about it, but immigration can be a real solution to that. And that's sort of like the most hopeful I felt around this. I'm like, okay, well, if if people in their everyday conversations are bringing this up and saying, like, we need workers, which means we need immigration instead of just deciding that what, we're going to shame people who we think aren't working hard enough or doing jobs that we think they should do? I mean, how's that working for us? Like, if you think that's the issue, that's fine. But is the solution going to be we're going to shame these people into it? We're just going to make them so poor they want to do these crappy jobs? And that's really the most hopeful I've I've felt <laughs> recently. Like, if everyday people are are engaging with the the complexity and the difficulties of our labor market, and how immigration fits within that, because that's the one place there should really not be scarcity. You know, like, I think there's a lot of scarcity around housing and infrastructure. But dang, we have two jobs for every unemployed American. There should not be any scarcity around labor. And hopefully people can can see that and understand immigration as a solution to that. But I don't know. I hope that's true, too. I I hope that those new dimensions to the conversation also open up new possibilities in our discussions of it, because I think that we absolutely need more people here in terms of making the economy start to not just work on the numbers, but work in the feeling of it to kind of feel more normal again. And I also hope that when we say maybe we don't trust the administration to handle it, that we less mean We don't trust a Democratic president to manage the border and more that we recognize that the laws that we have in place, what DHS has to work with, what the president has to work with, do not meet this moment Mm. because our current immigration laws result in really inhumane and uneven and unreliable enforcement. And so, you know, we've been talking for decades about how Congress needs to do better on this issue. And and I hope that these conflicting pressures might result in some positive momentum. Up next, we're going to talk about Florida and how conflicting pressures are leading to really negative momentum in a lot of areas. So after the break, we're going to talk about DeSantis and Disney. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality but not salon-priced manicure, Olive & June has you covered. We've talked about Olive & June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box. Salon-grade tools. Your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive & June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive & June each season is coming out with new colors, and I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. They say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. 
The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E.com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. As everyone knows by now, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, has been engaged in a political battle with the Disney Corporation. I see this as a battle on many fronts, but let's start at the beginning. I mean, maybe not the real beginning, but the most recent beginning, which is Florida's passage of what they call a parental rights and education bill and what critics call the don't say gay bill. Now, this bill prohibits classroom discussion or instruction about sexual orientation or gender identity. It is very vague, doesn't do a lot of defining of classroom discussion or classroom instruction. And critics say that it could prohibit, you know, a a teacher answering a basic question about their partners or similar questions about a student's family. This bill caused an enormous amount of controversy. Disney, as a huge political player in the state of Florida, 
experienced a lot of pressure from outside forces and from their own employees to get involved. So Disney paused political contributions in Florida and said it would support organizations that oppose the Don't Say Gay bill. DeSantis jumped all over this fight and said that, you know, Disney is a California corporation and they're not going to tell Florida what to do. And so in a, I think, very clear tit for tat, in a span of about 48 hours, the legislator passed and Ron DeSantis signed a about two-page long bill that ends Disney's special tax district in June of 2023. Now, I think we could go down a road about the governance side of this, about what that means to end the special tax district. I know a lot of us have read sort of the implications for taxpayers, the implications for emergency personnel, because what that tax district does is let Disney basically govern itself. So if they can't do that anymore and that governance is pushed on these two counties that cover this almost 40 square miles, what does that mean? But Beth, I'm going to make a proposition, which is I don't think this is about governance for DeSantis. I also don't think that this legislation is likely to survive a legal fight. And so I don't want to get too much in the weeds of that. What do you think? I think it's tough because in some ways, I think there's a really meaningful conversation to have about what local governance means when you have something the size of Disney that needs so much from counties and counties are already strapped in their budgets around emergency services, around water quality, you know, around roads that they they can't really afford to take this on. We asked people on Instagram, especially people in Florida, what they thought about this. And there was some like, well, Disney really ought to be, you know, paying taxes the way that everyone else pays taxes. Well, it's hard to imagine what this district is if not just a customized tax for Disney because it is paying for all of those services. And it's also contracting with lots of local local government agencies and people. There are many, many layers to this. And if we don't want to do the governance side here, maybe I'll do more to say about that because I think it's really interesting. But I agree with you that that's not what it's about for DeSantis. I would like to hover for a second on the suspension of political contributions as the provocative act here. Disney spends a ton of money on campaigns for Florida representatives and senators for parties in Florida, all over the country, but especially in Florida. And I think it is so uh, transparent that DeSantis responded to what he views as a provocation and what he's trying to sell to Floridians as an attack on Florida's parents, when what Disney really did that hurt was suspend political contributions. I think this suspension of political contributions is why, to me, this is not about governance, because this flies in the face of all the political rules, right? You don't mess with the big, powerful corporate players in your political realm. And I think what people are speaking about the tax, should Disney be taxed like everybody else, speaks a little bit to what DeSantis has touched here, which is, They're getting unfair treatment. And I think people understand they get special treatment and maybe have questions about this. But he did the calculus, maybe quickly and maybe wrongly, that the politics of this will outweigh the governance of this. Maybe because he knows it won't survive a legal challenge. Maybe because he 
is running for president and all politics is national. And so it's such a hot button national issue, both touching on, you know, conversations surrounding gender and sexuality and conversations about free speech and corporate power that he made the calculus like this is such a winning national political issue. It really doesn't matter what the costs are locally. Well, I read a piece from Sarah Rumpf, who knows Florida politics very well, and she also points out that in pursuit of the presidential nomination, Ron DeSantis now has an organization around him that gets small-dollar donations from across the country. And so he can afford to take this fight on with Disney. But that's not really true of, like, rank-and-file Florida legislators whose names aren't known maybe even in their own districts, but especially nationwide, those folks are going to need corporate donations to continue conducting their political activity the way that they do. So in some ways, DeSantis is really throwing them under the bus here, and he can afford to do that because he's running for president. He also might be making the calculation that if a lot of these folks lose and he gets a Democratic legislature to spar with for a couple of years, mm-hmm. it increases his national profile and increases right. his opportunity to win the nomination. Well, and I think that he has exhibited several times um, and has adopted the Trump sort of loyalty at all costs. It doesn't matter how you feel. You do what he says. doesn't matter the political cost for you. You are loyal to him or you will have consequences, way worse than any political consequences of following him. I think he's made that approach abundantly clear. So in pursuit of a deeper understanding of this particular cultural war, I listen to Ben Shapiro, God save me, on this issue. And it is it is like a hall of mirrors. Up is down, down is up. You know, he spends a lot of time quoting Barack Obama and like speeches from his ex-presidency as if that is the new, you know, Regulation coming from the federal government, it's very weird. But, you know, even he acknowledges the hypocrisy of this move from coming from the right. That the party of empowering corporate speech, empowering corporations, the party behind Citizens United is now saying, if you criticize the government, you will experience repercussions from the government, right? And it's wild to hear the justification. The justification is basically it's good enough for Democrats, so we're going to do it too. If you don't stay out of politics as a corporation, then we will just do it twice as hard as the Democrats do it to you because they are furious that corporations have sort of responded to liberal political desires, right? That Disney criticized this bill, but way before that, right? That teams, professional sports teams will pull out of states. Championships will be pulled out of states. Um, you see this long line. And this is what they list um, to say like, well, this the Democrats are being hypocritical for criticizing DeSantis for going after Disney. You guys do this all the time. You go out, you didn't want Chick-fil-A in your towns. That's what Ben Shapiro, he listed all these cities, mayors who said, I don't want you Chick-fil-A to come to town. And I think there is something interesting, right, to say, again, I think it's just the fight. It's really not about governance. It's really not even about policy. It's about the fight. You want to fight us in this territory? We'll come back. The libs want to fight us by 
going after corporations and making them prop up their belief systems, we'll go harder. We'll do it 10 times harder. We'll fight harder for what you really want and not let them win every sort of corporate fight. Well, I don't buy that any of that is about corporations. I think you're right. It is just the fight. I don't think that this is about what role the private sector plays in public matters. I think it is just who's with us and who's against us. And if you're against us, we're going to use every tool that we have, public and private, to make your life hard. And if you're with us, we're going to use every tool that we have uh, to make your life at least feel like you have a leg up on the people who are making life hard for us. At least feel like you have a leg up on the people who disagree with you. A lot of people, when we announced that we were going to talk about this issue, wanted us to talk about the hypocrisy of people like Ben Shapiro saying, stay out of politics when Citizens United has welcomed corporations into politics as people. And I think that's true. And I also think pointing out hypocrisy has not gotten us anywhere in our politics because we really aren't talking about ideas anymore. We are just talking about who's with us and who's against us. I think this is a good place to pivot because I don't think we're talking about ideas anymore in politics, but I do think we're talking about fears. Fears, concerns, even back to our conversation earlier about immigration. I was listening to David from On the Bulwark. I did a little tour. I did Pod Save America, The Bulwark, and then Ben Shapiro. What a (laughs) day. I took a tour across the spectrum on what people had to say about DeSantis. And, you know, David Frum's argument was DeSantis hates this fight. Because he wants to be the guy, the common sense guy who kept schools open during COVID. That's the position that is most beneficial to him. And I think that could be true in the general, but he has to win in the primary. And the the right wing of the Republican Party, the far right wing of the Republican Party, loves a fight. And the two issues that have really, I think, crystallized that position is the critical race theory and now this this fight about, quote-unquote, corporate grooming and LGBTQ issues. And they're both, both of them, (laughs) being driven by Christopher Rufo, this right-wing activist who basically created critical race theory, who lives his life on Fox News, is on there all the time. And look, he is good at this. He has figured out what people are worried about and how to articulate those fears in a way that empowers Republicans and punishes Democrats. Do you have any? I mean, am I overstating that, do you think? I think that's correct. I think he would say that's correct. I don't think that's controversial. I think that he he has understood that the only way to buffet attacks of— values from liberals and progressives. And what I mean is to buffet attacks that you are racist, that you are sexist, that you are homophobic on adults is to say, to tell the other adult that they don't, not only are they, do they not care about children, but they are actively harming children. So you call me racist. I say you're telling little kindergartners they're racist. You tell me I'm sexist. You're, you're degendering children. You tell me I'm homophobic. You're training kids that there is no gender 
and that there, you know, sexuality is a spectrum and all these things. So he used a lot of the Disney diversity inclusion videos. That's what kicked off this don't say gay thing. He he'd throw up these videos. I had members of my own family send them to me. There's one with the diversity inclusion manager at Disney saying that they have eliminated all mentions of ladies and gentlemen and boys and girls. And now they're using inclusive things like hello, everyone. They had one where they were going to cover gender reassignment surgery in not only employees, but employees' children. So that's the one that my relative sent me. They had ones about where a, a, a content creator, sort of a a creative on the Disney staff, like talked about her hesitancies to join Disney and then felt like they were very accepting of her creative vision. And she like jokingly says, like, my not at all secret gay agenda, like as sort of a little quip, they've turned that into sort of this fear-mongering. And by they, I mean Christopher Rufo with the support of Fox News. And this sort of, they want to upend everything. They want to do it to your kids. Corporate America is helping them, and we are the only ones stopping them. And I think you see that theme over and over and over again. And if that's what, to me, it's like, you know, how do we answer that? I mean, I think some people have figured out that is why Mallory McMorrow's speech went viral is because her forcefully standing up and saying, how dare you accuse me, a Christian suburban mother of grooming children, sort of that that answer of turning that identity back on them, I think. That's why everybody loved that so much. That's why it was so well received is because there hasn't been a lot of answer to these fears coming from the Democratic left, the sort of progressive wing. I don't think anybody has really articulated the the answer or the calming or the de-escalation to that Christopher Rufo approach, which which we have seen in school boards, which we have seen in Florida, which we have seen in Texas, which we just see over and over and over again. I feel a little bit about this conversation like I feel about the leaked Supreme Court opinion in Roe versus Wade which is that I cannot continue to discuss these issues on the terms created and recycled and disseminated by people like Christopher Rufo and major media corporations. And that is for both the progressive side and the conservative side. I am not saying they are equal. I am not trying to do false comparisons here. But what I do want to say is I need to have a freshness, and a locality of these discussions. Because when you talk with people in the abstract about no longer saying ladies and gentlemen, it just becomes slamming your head against walls. And when you talk in the specific about our community and these kids and what all they're coming to school with or what all they're coming to this uh, amusement park with, then you can have a more reasonable discussion. And I think the same is true about critical race theory. And I think the same is true about the don't say gay bill. Like, I think the same is true about Chick-fil-A. I just I just think that I need personally to cope with this moment in American politics by walking away from the language that we are all absorbing from folks who have clear agendas around how the language is used. I listened to the argument on Friday. It was Jane Coaston and Michelle Goldberg and 
Ross Dothit, and they were talking about Don't Say Gay. And I thought it was one of the best conversations I've heard about that undercurrent and how exactly what you said, how it's being defined by the right wing, but also acknowledging that there are real cultural, I don't know if concerns, because I don't want it to become this sort of moral panic, which I think in many ways it already is, but where there there is something there. Could we use uncertainty? Is that a fair word to use here? Yeah, I think cultural uncertainty in the face of change. Because the I thought I don't. Did you get a chance to listen to it? I did. Yeah, I was listening at I, the exact moment you texted oh, right, me and I told me I should listen to it at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought the best moment was when Ross Dothit said, 10 years ago or fifteen years ago, as a social conservative, if I had said in the face of arguments around marriage equality." Well, in 15 years from now, people can name themselves and you'll tell me sexuality is a spectrum and everybody can choose at any moment in their life what they want to do and people will be choosing their genders. You would have called me an alarmist and you would have said, how dare you try to argue against something? People are born this way. They don't choose it. And it's it's just this finite percent of the population that we need to allow to marry who they love. And how dare you? accelerate it and scare people that way. And I thought, he's right. He's right. That's exactly what would have happened. (laughs) I had this conversation with my 12-year-old. I said, you weren't alive then, Griffin. The argument was people don't choose. They're like this. They just want to marry who they love, and this that'll be it. I'm like, but, I, I mean, I don't, let me say definitively, I don't care if people choose. I don't care if people go back and forth. I actually do believe sexuality is a spectrum. But, you know, that was not the way it was being argued at the time. And I think there is this this undercurrent of uncertainty because people feel like, wait, I thought we were talking about marriage equality and now people can choose at any given moment and then change their mind in any given moment what gender they want to be. Like that, I'm articulating in broad strokes what I think that cultural uncertainty is not that I agree or disagree with it, not I think it's realistic, but I think that's there and I don't think it's I think they have tapped it, but I don't think they necessarily invented it. And I think that's what's really really difficult. And I think there's a way to speak to uncertainty without condoning the fears. I think there is a way to speak to uncertainty without with with guidance and love and values and support that's that really wrap our arms around the most impressed, vulnerable members of our society that are personally touched by these issues. Because I think the alternative is, in an effort to protect them, we put them on the pyre as the fuel, right? I don't want I don't want trans kids to fuel these damn conversations anymore. It's so toxic. It's so unfair. And it's like, we keep trying to say, well, you hate them and you want to punish them. And we're not. And it's just intensifying the fight. It's like we need jujitsu. Like we need to say, OK, we all care about kids here. We all like how can we drop the ground out from under this fight? And like you say, and, and, and present it in a fresh way or, or confirm the concerns in a way that stop putting this community 
at the center of this fight and making and, and turning it into you hate kids, you hate kids, you want to groom kids, you want to kill kids. Like, Jesus, like, <laughs> if Disney can't find their way out, like, we really need help. I saw a therapist for about six years who was a really wonderful teacher to me, and I've spoken about this before, but one of the things that he taught me was this phrase, the spell of solidity. I have this really irrational distrust of basic physics, and I believe that my kitchen cabinets are going to fall from the weight of plates all the time. And it is a physical sensation that I experience, and my husband thinks it is hilarious, and it is hilarious, and it is also terrible to live that way. <laughs> and and he said to me, Beth, this is the spell of solidity having broken for you. Because humans developmentally need to believe that some things are settled. Mm-hmm. Some things just are, and they are unchangeable, and we need that. And it messes with us when something comes along and disrupts what we believe is just settled. And I think that we are all overloaded with the breakage of the spell of solidity right now in so yeah. many places. I agree with you that that was a really wonderful moment in that episode of The Argument when Ross Douthat said that about what we would have thought 10, 15 years ago. I would submit that 10, 15 years ago, I also never would have believed that a Republican governor Mm -hmm. would use the law to punish a corporation for expressing a viewpoint on a piece of legislation. I would not have believed that Roe versus Wade would be overturned and that immediately people would start talking about whether birth control ought to be banned, whether IVF ought to be legal. I never would have believed these things were possible. So the spell of solidity has been completely shattered. And developmentally, that is hard on us. And that doesn't mean that I think every viewpoint is totally understandable or that the way people are behaving especially is acceptable. It is also why I have got to find some smaller spaces for these discussions. And when you talk to people in Florida about what's going on with Disney, you get a really complex set of considerations. Considerations that do reach the trash collection and the firefighters and the response time of ambulances. Considerations that do talk about municipal bonds and taxation and what is the balance of economic development, which always has benefits and always has burdens. And it is really hard to get that calculus of benefits and burdens of economic development right. And so I think that's a really good framework to think about the larger discussion about what it means to have transgender and non-binary people um, as a focal point in art and culture and social media and for us to be rethinking some of our language because we have people who have always existed but who are now being cared for and who are being fought for. And I think we are really struggling to figure out where something is advocacy that needs to push hard on an issue and forcefully and fight, and where just people trying to deal with this cultural uncertainty begin. And I just keep looking for ways to keep my feet firmly in the people, looking for ways to handle cultural uncertainty category instead of the fight-fight category. I I know we need people to fight-fight on multiple sides of different issues. I also know that that's not what I'm here to do. And it's easy 
to believe because of all that language, because of those refined messages that make their way to us in such a deliberate fashion, it's easy to get confused about your place in the scope of that discussion. Yeah, it's so interesting listening to Ben Shapiro because, you know, obviously his posture is very fight, 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 but it's always the left. There's no acknowledgement. There's no mention of polling. There's no mention of where most Americans are. There's never any conversation about oh, well, what some of this push came from within the Disney Corporation, came from with like employees that were pushing for this activism, as it often happens in corporate America. Under his view of the world, it is the left, um, the left-wing media complex, and Barack Obama, I guess, who's still steering all this. It was so fat. You know, he goes on this whole thing about how Barack Obama lied for eight years all the time. And I thought, where am I? What is happening? Like— but, I mean, that's his formulation of the world, right? It's a concerted effort that this isn't a sort of generational shift or generational conversation, which I absolutely think it is, but that it is a it is a concerted ef- effort from the left. Maybe the left is composed of young people primarily, and he's okay with that. I don't know. But— and when I heard him talking about this, it was just very def- – it was very defined by the fight. And so I – you know, I want to believe desperately that when it touches real issues of governance and real complexity in people's lives and impact in people's lives, that that will lessen that that urge to fight, lessen that fear and that scarcity. But I think what we've learned from Republican politics over the last mm, – five years, is that that is not the case. It doesn't matter if the childhood tax credit positively impacts your bottom line. It doesn't matter if you have one of the best job markets out there. It doesn't matter if your roads are falling apart. It doesn't matter if in Kansas they have to shut the school down one day a week because they can't afford budgetary to run this. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that there is a minority view, and I think the understanding that it's a minority view and that, you know, it's it's cancellation really means that, you know, I'll call you a pedophile in pursuit of my political ambition, right? Like, it's just power. It's not governance. Um, it's just power. And I think a lot of it's cultural power. I think a lot of it is, you know, and, I, and I'm talking, I'm not talking about the people with honest concerns. I'm talking about, you know, Republican Party leadership, but also Republican Party activists and that, that far right wing of the party that nothing anybody says or does is going to upend their desire for a fight. And so to me, if that's the political reality, if the political reality is, you know, January 6th was just some nice tourists and the real enemy here is the left that Barack Obama is a secret socialist trying to destroy America, then there's just this, I feel this is like desperate need to, like you say, just upend it. Like, well, stop giving them a fight. Just stop giving them a fight, right? Like, just stop. I don't know. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know how you stop engaging in a culture war on this level. I really, <laughs> I don't, I don't even know what that would look like. I feel, I felt trapped so much in this, this cycle for most of my adult life and it just keeps escalating and escalate you're worse you're worse you're worse you're worse and it's it's so i think this disney situation because it flies so in the face of the traditional political rules particularly around state politics i mean can you 
talk about going back in time. One year ago, oh, well, they're going to go after Disney. What? Like, it just flies in the face of political logic. And so I'm having to think, well, then the political logic is different. What am I missing? What am I not seeing? What are to our detriment, to everybody's detriment? And I think that is just exhausting. I think trapped in a cycle is a great way to put it. Because it does feel like nothing matters. I was reading Charlie Sykes' uh, newsletter for The Bulwark this morning as we talk about uh, venturing into the territory of conservatism. And The Bulwark is a never-Trump explicitly um, outlet that I think does really excellent commentary in particular. And Charlie Sykes was talking about the protest that broke out over the weekend in the wake of the Supreme Court leak, and particularly about the folks who showed up around Brett Kavanaugh's house. And he was saying, look, there is nothing that spins the Republican media machine more than protests, nothing. And especially protests at someone's house like this will be days and days of content for that Mm -hmm. Republican media machine. And I think that it just has us all believing that every pro-life person I know must relish the thought of forced birth and cutting off access to birth control. And every left-wing person I know must want to police every sentence I've ever stated and ensure that corporations abide by a list of rules or else they go bankrupt. Mm. And that is just not where the people I know are. I know people who will say some banana things now, but I think that's because bananas things have so permeated our discourse. I think what Ben Shapiro said about Barack Obama lying all the time is necessitated by books like This Will Not Pass, the new book from Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns of the New York Times. I'm reading it. It is so well-sourced and so full of details that I did not know before. It's also drenched with disdain for Donald Trump as a human. And I read it and I think this is such important information that I wish everyone knew. And if you have any sense of, I thought Donald Trump could have been a good president, I voted for him once, maybe I voted for him twice, you'll just put it down a page or two in. And I'm not criticizing them because I've I've really tried to interrogate myself, like, what do you expect when you're sitting in the middle of all this information and you're trying To not do a journalist thing and have the left come at you for being too Mm -hmm. fair, then this is what is going to get produced. And I'm not criticizing the left for that either. I'm just saying, I think, to your point about being stuck in a cycle, that we all feel that sense of being trapped. I'm either not a good enough ally or I'm not fighting for real values. You know, I've gotten a couple of emails in the past few weeks where, like, I don't fight you enough on this podcast. I'm not interested in fighting (laughs) anywhere. I'm interested in thinking and growing and listening and learning and trying to find some openings in our politics. And I worry that we are well past being able to find openings because we've all been taught that all political action looks like fighting. And I'm also kind of hopeful because I do think DeSantis has way overplayed his hand here. Legally, I think this is a joke. I think there's no way the special tax district goes down. Politically, I think that it is so transparent that it it could 
fracture a little bit of at least his constituency. Um, And I don't know what happens after that, but I'll take it, you know? Yeah, I think those openings are what I'm looking for. And, you know, I've decided for myself in my own conversations with people, I have to stop denying people's fears. Because when people feel that their fears are silenced, that fuels the fight. And it costs me nothing to say, I hear you. It is a confusing time surrounding gender. It is. I don't feel like that's a lie. It is. It's confusing and it's hard. And there is, and we are transitioning. You know, <laughs> some of us literally, the cultural figuratively, we are, we are in it with that right now. And, you know, if I was planning this out, I'm not sure a post-pandemic was the best time to do that, but it is what it is. And so I, I just, I want to give people space to say, this feels hard. This feels like some people want to change everything, including ladies and gentlemen, right? And I just want to give people space to be able to say that because keeping it in their own heads or keeping it only in the rage-fueled environment that is Fox News is hurting everyone, particularly the people that, that so many of us feel are most vulnerable, like trans people. And so I just, I want, I want to do something different. I don't want to be fighting about Ron DeSantis and Disney and whatever the equivalent is at the expense of actual governance, at the expense of actual ideas, at the expense of our actual values, because everything has been subsumed to just they're the enemy. We are going to pivot a little bit to what we're thinking about outside politics. Up next. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. 
Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Beth, I said we we're going to pivot just a little bit because I do think what we're going to talk about now is relevant, which is May, as in the month we are currently in, <laughs> and the exhaustion that accompanies it and how that plays out in lots of ways. Why, why have we put every, I would argue, gendered appreciation holiday in the month of May. Why is Nurses Day and Teacher Appreciation Day and Mother's Day all at the beginning of May? Who did this? Who planned this? I would like to talk to them. I don't know. I loved for years the the meme of it's going to be May. And then this year, I saw several people posting Britney Spears with just so typically May. And I prefer that hard. <laughs> um, and it has helped me a lot because every time I sit down with my calendar and see just not a square filled with white space, I think, just so typically May. That's just what this is. Yeah, when I heard it several, gosh, it was probably years ago. I don't even know who, I wish I could credit where I heard it originally, but I don't. The first person who said it's December 2.0, I thought, yes, that's it. Like, it's a transition of season. It's an incredibly sort of emotionally intense time of year. Like, we're wrapping up something. We're ending the school year. We're having all these sort of important holidays. Just even economically, like we've had so many people like advertisers and some of the companies we work with say that Mother's Day is the second busiest time of year after Christmas for like purchasing and gift giving and all that. And it's like, I don't know why we keep doing this to ourselves. I also think it's particularly intense this year because it feels like we're all trying to get back to sort of the normal schedule after the pandemic, even though I don't think the pandemic is completely over, obviously, there is still COVID out there. But like scheduling things that got rescheduled, even us, like even, you know, we had so many people like, why do you have 
an event schedule the same night as the podcast. And we're like, well, because we were both rescheduling things that we had had to postpone. And so there's like, like the normal things that we're like, oh, we can do this again this year. And then we have all this backlog stuff that got postponed that we're trying to do this year. And it feels very, very much to me like that moment after giving birth when you're like, I feel good. I'm going to go do something. And then you do something seemingly normal that you should be capable of doing and you do it. And then every cell in your body was like, girl, it was too soon. I, I, I wanted you to know it was too soon, but you weren't listening to me, but it was too soon. There's also a terrible mismatch of expectations and reality for most of May. Because that change of season makes you feel like, ooh, I should be outside all the time. I should be yeah. lounging under the sun. I should be swimming. I should be biking. I should be taking long walks with the people I love. But actually what you're doing is like running to the store to get the gift that you forgot to buy and calling someone to say, hey, can you please drop them off for this thing because we've got this over here. Graduation is supposed to feel amazing. Oh, yeah. And graduation feels like a damn slog most of the time. Um, I just think that there are so many pieces. We heard from many, many people on Instagram about how Mother's Day is so disappointing. And it is, right? That hurts your feelings. But the truth is, nobody's up for any of this. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody's ever up for all the things that May has this time of yep. year, but especially this year. Because while all this normal Mayness is going on, and the return to normal Mayness is going on, we're also getting that terrible deja vu of like, there are an awful lot of COVID cases right now. If we hadn't changed the way we did the map, the map would all be red right now. What do we think about that? You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And you just, and so it's all over the place. I saw Dr. Strange over the weekend. I'm really excited to talk with you about it when you see it. But I've just been really thinking about how much wisdom there is in the multiverse mm -hmm. <laughs> because I do feel like we're in the multiverse right now. Yeah. So much of our weekend was spent managing Felix's diabetes, which is what we do. That's our that's our full-time job now. Um, we still have to do all the other things on top of that. And a big part of diabetes management is what's called basal insulin, which is long-acting insulin. So it's like this base level. And then you bolus, which is insulin you bolus for every meal, right? And it feels like <laughs> that our basal insulin level is not right in America. We do not have the right base level of adjustment. You know what I'm saying? Like our base level of exhaustion, our base level of energy, our base sort of emotional capacity, our base mental health, like it's just not right. So we're we're peaking, we're falling. We're peaking, we're falling. We're peaking, we're falling. Um and as we were, you know, sort of in that mindset, I thought, oh yeah, this this feels like what's going on with America. Mm -hmm. Our base is just not quite right. I think that's right. And I don't really know how to adjust it except to gently suggest in every place where someone cares what I think, maybe we could do less. Mm -hmm. Maybe we could not do this thing that we typically do, or maybe we could do it like in a much easier version. I had high hopes for throwing a rockin' last day of school pool party. And I think what I'm going to do is say, if you'd like to come swim, you're welcome to. And if you'd like to bring a dish, please do. <laughs> like, yeah. that's about the best I, I've got right now. I was at church this weekend. We're having a really hard time getting enough people to fill all the roles. And I sat there thinking, do we need to do this every Sunday? <laughs> like, is there an adjustment that could be made here to walk some of the pressure back? I don't know, but I'm looking for it. Everywhere I can find it, I'm looking for somebody to say, what, what if we did less? I think that's a great question. I love those moments where we can ask 
what can we do differently? What could we do less? <laughs> Where could we find a different opening in this conversation? It's my favorite part of what we do here at Pantsuit Politics. I hope what we have done here today around immigration and Disney and God bless May has been helpful to all of you. Thank you for joining us um, every week. We will be back in your ears on Friday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Emily Neasley. The Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Katie Steigers. Karen True. Annika Uveline. Nick and Elisa Valelli. Catherine Vollmer. Amy Whited. Jeff Davis. Melinda Johnston. Ashley Thompson. Michelle Wood. Joshua Allen. Morgan McHugh. Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.